Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. We're on part five and we're moving into the second section of the book. We're on chapter 10. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can contribute to what we're doing here. You can help this process and keep these books in the hands of sailors for many years to come. Now on with the story. Part 2, Madeira, 1925. Chapter 10, Preparations. It was my good fortune to meet Byford in 1924, and we discovered quickly that we were both keen to sail, and to sail in small boats on big waters. The first attempt was a heartbreaking failure, in which we were shipwrecked and were lucky to escape with our lives. I lost the Annie, and as she was uninsured, I lost with her all she represented in love, labour and money. We did our best to find a couple of men to join us in a second attempt to fit out a boat which should be at least big enough to hold four of us and our gear with comfort. I'm sure that there must be a few men with plenty of leisure, two or three hundred pounds sterling and a liking for the sea and the adventures that can still be found upon it, but we were unable to strike against any of them. I can't waste more time and money in hunting for these imaginary beings, said I. The Joan will hold only two, and I'm going to fit her out at once. There's just about time to do it. Well, where do you think of going? Byford asked. If I go alone, I don't know where I shall go. I shan't make any definite plans, but if anyone will come with me, I'm ready to go to... And I sighed a dream of distant places. Well then, I'm ready to join you. If you're prepared to put your confidence in the Joan... I'm game enough. Whereupon we laid plans, many plans, on the understanding that we should change them all, root and branch, at a moment's notice, if we thought we would. Byford at once disappeared into a school of navigation. That was in the beginning of February 1925. He swatted and I found a temporary job, and by Easter I had had the luck to earn almost enough to pay the shipwright's bill for getting the boat ready. And I really did my best to get the Joan ready for an ocean cruise, meaning that I told others to do their best. My shipbuilder was ordered to haul her into his yard and to do all he possibly could to her. In about a month, he had pulled her upon the beach and said he would listen to what I had to say. He accepted an incomplete list of my requirements. The shipwrecks were to do away with the forehatch and to put a deck light and a mushroom ventilator in its place. The large open cockpit was to be reduced by half and a bridge deck built over the front half to give space below where water tanks could be stowed. All standing and running gear to be renewed, keel bolts examined, every seam in the deck and hull to be recorked where necessary. By the end of the month, we had started some of these items. After being spoken to, he swore he would have everything ready by Easter, and so ten days after Easter, I came out of harbour with eighty gallons of water aboard in tanks, and a hatch that sluiced rain upon the beds. Most of the new paint had been rubbed off in the harbour. There were large patches of bare wood below the waterline. She had not yet been painted with anti-fouling. The mainsail wanted repairing, and the boat was full of sawdust. But at any rate, she would sail, and I took her to Erith. Byford joined me there. Where shall we go? he asked. Mm, Madeira, I said. Well, why not Vigo? It's nearer and we've never yet tested our supposed knowledge of navigation. I agreed to go to Vigo. After a fortnight at Erith, a paraffin tank was fitted and some of the gear and stores found places. 
time flew so quickly that we began to fear the year would pass in preparation. Let's get away and prepare as we go, I said to Byford, and we went. Holhaven, Harty Ferry and Dover were our first halting places. From Dover, we made a five days passage to Plymouth, where we had our compass adjusted. Then we went to Falmouth and St Moors, where we stayed for more than a fortnight, doing things and getting them done. If you go travelling on the sea, you cannot navigate your boat without having a compass, a sextant, a clock, a nautical almanac, a book of tables, the light lists and charts. I do not say that you can navigate your boat if you get all these articles, but that you can't navigate unless you do have them. And as it was our intention to navigate the Joan, we were obliged to buy the lot. A fine seven-inch liquid compass was set up in the cabin. The steersman could see it through a small window, and by night it was lighted from below, for the base was of glass and the card was transparent. One of the water tanks was about a foot away, and the remaining two tanks were close handy. I thought that the compass might have an appreciable deviation. On our passage down channel, we took a few bearings of the sun in order to get an idea of what our compass was doing. The sun's bearings were approximate only, for we could only obtain them by pointing the bowsprit to the sun while we read our compass and chronometer. When I sorted the results, they appeared to present a hodgepodge of impossible differences. The errors varied from nil when we were pointing due west to half a right angle when we pointed east. I gave it up and made a note to inquire the price of swinging the compass. At Plymouth, I had to go into J. Blowey's shop and I asked him how much it would cost. The minimum, he said, is two guineas. How big is your ship and what sort of compass have you got? When he had listened to the details, he offered to come at once and look at it and to tell me whether the job was worth doing. He came, examined the compass and its position, drank as much tea as I do myself and offered to swing the ship and complete the compass adjustment for two guineas. I accepted the offer. When Mr. Blowey and his assistant came next day, we sailed into the sound. With a tripod fixed on the bridge deck, a brass disc on the tripod and what seemed to me a gimbaled sundial on the disc, he found an error of three and a half points, or 33 degrees, when he pointed the boat's head east, meaning that if we had tried to go to London from Plymouth, we would have reached Paris. With her head west, the error was small. A good thing for us, we had come west. He screwed down a pair of magnets and made out a deviation card, according to which our greatest deviation was now a quarter of a point. We sawed out a hole to admit light to the compass. This enabled us to see it easily and comfortably by day, or rather we thought it would, until we learned better. We wanted a small lamp to put nearly under the compass, so as to see it by night. At first, we used a tinned iron back lamp that caused a further deviation of three quarters of a point on one bearing. What it did on others, I don't know. We hunted Plymouth and Falmouth for a brass or copper lamp, but at last, we had to have one made expressly for us. It cost us nine shillings and sixpence, and was guaranteed by the maker to contain no iron at all. But rust marks showed in the burner by the time we reached Vigo, nor did the burner screw in vertically, I had to cant the lamp in order to make the chimney stand upright. After the compass had been adjusted and the copper lamp fixed, it acted efficiently. It would have been of great service to us if we could always have seen it conveniently. As it was, the instrument was so good and so important that we had selected for it a home out of harm's way. When the sun shone brightly, 
All we could see was the reflection of anything that happened to be in front of the window which protected the compass. A fine view of the sea, or the sky, or a rope, or the deck could be obtained, but you could not see the compass well enough to steer a course unless you peered close to it. Then the tiller was almost out of your reach, and you could not steer a course at all. At night, and when there was no sun, the compass would be seen perfectly if you sat on one side of the boat. When spray and water blew over it, it was not always pleasant to sit on that side. We compromised, therefore, by using the compass when we could see it, and guessing the course when we could not. I bought a second-hand sextant from a blacksmith and worried it in secret for months without getting further than an increased admiration for it. A few days before we left Falmouth, I insisted upon taking it ashore along with a book of rules so that we might find out something about its working. We put it into a potato sack and marched through the village of St Moors without attracting more attention than was drawn by the sack. In a lonely spot on a hill, we tipped it out and opened the book. One read aloud the instructions which the other followed as best he could. It was a foul, gusty day. The wind would not let us hold the sextant steady and our arms tired while we vainly tried to see two objects simultaneously through two looking-glasses. It appeared that a sextant could make four different kinds of mistake and our book told us how to correct these mistakes if by any remote chance they were present. Our sextant had all four and badly. One we partially corrected, the second improved as the third grew worse, and the fourth could not be eradicated according to the book, only by the maker of the instrument. Our instrument had no maker, as far as we knew, and in any event, he was bound to be dead. But we cheered up on learning that it was no great matter, so long as the error was less than three minutes of arc. Then we discovered that ours suffered from an error of 110 minutes of arc. We sorrowfully put the sextant back in the sack and went home to the Joan. We required more beer than usual that evening to restore our optimism. I suppose the errors must have balanced one another, for we found the instrument good enough for our purpose. Then, too, our chronometers were not all that they should have been. All I knew of the real articles was what I had read in nautical works. When I first inquired the price of one, I was told that it would cost at least fifty pounds. I squirmed for a moment, but regained my serenity as I reflected that it would not cost me fifty pounds. I would sooner go without a chronometer. I argued the matter out with myself and read over again all the information which I could collect upon the subject. Chronometers required careful handling, which was about the last thing that they would get on the Joan. There must be a special compartment reserved for them, and there wasn't any special compartment reservable on the Joan. Heavens, it was all I could do just to reserve the bunks for our own use. Even in this, we never reached perfection. Then, you really ought to carry three chronometers, 150 pounds, a piece of information that took my breath away. A chronometer shop offered me a dozen good second-hand instruments for $20 a piece. They were guaranteed, but I was not sure what they were guaranteed to do. I felt almost sure that if my boat were wrecked through those 12 second-hand chronometers going wrong, the guarantor would not buy me another boat, and I read accounts of new chronometers going wrong. Fancy paying £150 in order to be unable to find your longitude. Any fool could do that without paying a cent. Byford and I decided that we would each buy a good watch. I paid £3.10 for mine, 
and the man who sold it to me said that this was the wholesale price and that it would keep true Greenwich time for years without ever being a second out. He showed me a similar watch which he carried in his waistcoat pocket. He had had it there for six years, he said. He had sent it to GMT at the beginning of that period and it wasn't a second out now. During all that time, he'd done nothing but wind it up and it had kept such good time that on several occasions he had detected a slight error on the part of Greenwich. I said, that was the exact watch I wanted. By the time we reached Dover, it had broken its mainspring. A watchmaker mended it and sent it on to Falmouth. I left it for nearly a week in the charge of another watchmaker there, telling him to set it to Greenwich meantime, not summertime, to rate it for me, and otherwise to leave it alone. When I called for it, he said it was a poor sort of watch, that the mainspring had again broken, and he had repaired it, and that it now kept fairly good time, summertime. What its rate was, God only knew. By means of two time signals, we found that it was 3,606 seconds fast, and that it was losing at the rate of half a second a day. We sailed away on that understanding, and worked our passage with it. When we reached Vigo, we found that it had gained three minutes during the passage instead of losing nine seconds. But the place we arrived at really was Vigo, and we have ample evidence to prove it. We rated it again in Vigo. We made a lovely home for it in an old compass bowl which would swing on its gimbals in a box. This we lined with cotton wool and reserved it for the best place in the boat, which was my bunk. When we reached Funchal, we found that it had lost a minute and a half. Again, we rated it, finding, of course, quite a different rate from any that we had previously found. We arrived at Falmouth without any trouble, so far as a knowledge of our position was concerned, and we worked religiously by that watch all the time. I wanted very much to know how far out it was, but alas, one night soon after our arrival, I forgot to wind it up. The morning must be the best time for remembering to wind chronometers. I bought the customary nautical almanac, abridged for the use of seamen for 1925. Byford bought one for 1926. He never explained what his idea was. My edition was invaluable. We used it daily on our passages. Another almanac we carried was a popular one which gave not only a selection of the information contained in the above official book, but contained a deal of other useful and interesting matter. It was often used for study or recreation. We also had Inman's tables, the latest and best, and I had to pay full price for them. Our charts were bought from the regular agent so that we expected them to be correct. I dare say they were. We never found anything wrong with them. We had one of the place we were leaving from and another of the place we were going to. What more did we want? All between was water, most of it 2,000 fathoms deep, and the Joan required less than a single one of them to float her. But it was not only navigation that gave us trouble. The catering called for even more thought and worry. The carrying of sufficient stores was more important in our eyes than navigation. By much perseverance in sailing, we could arrive somewhere at some time if only we could carry enough to eat and drink. We had discussed the food problem time and again and evolved two primary facts which were to govern our action. First, any food stores would be quickly damaged by moisture and warmth. They must be kept in a cool and dry spot. Secondly, there was no such spot on the Joan. There were many spots that were cool when they were not dry and a few that were dry when they were not cool. Most of the spots were wet while it rained and whenever we sailed. 
Neither of us could see a way of adopting both governing principles at the same time. The most sensible compromise seemed that of eating the outside skin of our supplies quicker than they could go mouldy, and so to work our way by layers to the centre. Byford, however, disagreed and suggested the opposite plan to start from the middle where it was cool and dry, and so to eat until we met the innermost layer of mildew. We repeatedly made lists of the food stores which we required and continually wondered both when and where to buy them and how to stow them. We read what other adventurers advised but found the advice hard to follow on the Joan. We went to a prominent baker to inquire the price of £220 of biscuits and after learning that his cabin biscuits were especially made for boats and would last for years, we ordered £50 for an experiment. After they had been delivered and returned because they were packed in wooden boxes into which water could easily trickle, and after we had used the necessary insulting language to the baker, the biscuits were re-delivered in a rough set of soldered tins. Suppose they turn out all right, asked Byford. What should we do about them? Well, eat them, of course. But when we've eaten them all, we'll buy some more. But where? Well, wherever we happen to be. But suppose we're miles away from anywhere. Very well, let's buy £200 now. But suppose they go mouldy. We practiced arguing in this instructive manner over most of our problems, and by easy stages we spent most of our money. A shipwright put up a cupboard in the forecastle. To make sure that he really did it, we took him in the boat with us from St Moors to Falmouth when we sailed across to take in water and to buy our very last list of stores. While we sailed, he shipwrighted and it was not an uninteresting sight to see him get into the dinghy to saw wood and hop back onto the yacht to fit it. We loaded up with water and groceries. That day in Falmouth, I had a bad throat, and I found that quarrelling with everybody did it a world of good. Then we sailed back to St Moors, and with much labour, packed our food in the cupboard which had just been built by the shipwright. It was back-aching and head-aching work, for most of the time we had to stand on one leg and keep steady by pressing our heads against the roof, and in this ungainly position of strain, we shifted cases of bully and milk and the hundred and one parcels with which we had filled the boat. But I thought the packing had been done very well by Byford, who, being much taller than I, had elected to go into the forecastle to do it. We were both very tired and hungry when we'd finished, and I dropped upon my bunk and feebly raked out some bread and cheese. Having something to eat, eh? Splendid idea. What is there? Well, there's 96 tins of bully, ditto of condensed milk, five dozen baked beans, 12 pounds of cheese, 50 pound of biscuits and half a dozen loaves. Just give us a biscuit and marmalade. Where's the other knife? Dirty. Want wiping. Any paper? Plenty round the ham. Where's the ham? Next to the foghorn. Well, where's the foghorn? I pointed to it. Why, you've put it in the very place I've bagged for my trousers. This meant rearrangement, more work, and another day's delay. But we really did get away from England on June the 7th, and we ate biscuits and bully on the way to Vigo. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner where for $5 a month you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.